Chapter 4 of The Pleasures of Ignorance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Mihaeva. The Pleasures of Ignorance by Robert Lind. The Hum of Insects. It makes all the difference whether you hear an insect in the bedroom or in the garden. In the garden, the voice of the insect soothes. In the bedroom it irritates. In the garden it's the hum of spring. In the bedroom it seems to belong to the same school of music as the bees of the dentist's drill or the sawmill. It may be that it is not the right sort of insect that invades the bedroom. Even in the garden we wave away a mosquito. Either its note is in itself offensive, or we dislike it as the voice of an unscrupulous enemy. By an unscrupulous enemy I mean an enemy that attacks without waiting to be attacked. The mosquito is a beast of prey. It's out for blood, whether one is as gentle as Tom Pinch or uses violence. The bee and the wasp are in comparison noble creatures. They will, so it is said, never injure a human being unless a human being has injured them. The worst of it is they do not discriminate between one human being and another, and the bee that floats over the wall into our garden may turn out to have been exasperated by the behaviour of a retired policeman five miles away who struck at it with a spade and roused in it a blind passion for reprisals. That or something like it is probably the explanation of the stings perfectly innocent persons receive from an insect that is said never to touch you if you leave it alone. As a matter of fact, when a bee loses its head, it doesn't even wait for a human being in order to relieve its feelings. I have seen a dog racing round a field and terror as a result of a stink from an angry bee. I have seen a turkey racing round a farmyard in terror as a result of the same thing. All the trouble arose from a human being's having very properly removed a large quantity of honey from a row of hives. I do not admit that the bee would have been justified in stinging even the human being who, after all, is master on this partially civilized planet. It had certainly no right to sting the dog or the turkey, which had as little to do with stealing the honey as the vice-chancellor of Oxford University. Yet in spite of such things, and of the fact that some breeds of bees are notorious for their crossness, especially when there is thunder in the air, the bee is morally far higher in the scale than the mosquito. Not only does it give you honey instead of malaria, and help your apples and strawberries to multiply, but it aims at living a quiet, inoffensive life, at peace with everybody, except when it is annoyed. The mosquito does what it does in cold blood. That is why it is so unwelcome a bedroom visitor. But even a bee or a wasp, I fancy, would seem tedious company at two in the morning, especially if it came and buzzed near the pillow. It is not so much that you would be frightened. If the wasp alighted on your cheek, you could always lie still and hold your breath till it had finished trying to sting. That is an infallible preventive. But there is a limit to the amount of your night's rest that you are willing to sacrifice in this way. You cannot hold your breath while you are asleep, and you dare not cease holding your breath while a wasp is walking over your face. Besides, it might crawl into your ear, and what would you do then? Luckily, the question doesn't often arise in practice owing to the fact that the wasp and the bee are more like human beings than mosquitoes and have more or less the same habits of nocturnal rest. As we sit in the garden, however, the mind is bound to speculate, and to revolve such questions as whether this hum of insects that delights us is in itself delightful, whether its delightfulness depends on its surroundings, or whether it depends on its associations with past springs. 
certainly in a garden the noise of insects seems as essentially beautiful a thing as the noise of birds or the noise of the sea even these have been criticised especially by persons who suffer from sleeplessness but their beauty is affirmed by the general voice of mankind these three noises appear to have an infinite capacity for giving us pleasure a capacity probably beyond that of any music of instruments it may be that on hearing them we become a part of some universal music and that the rhythm of wave bird and insect echoes in some way the rhythm of our own breath and blood man is in love with life and these are the millionfold chorus of life the magnified echo of his own pleasure in being alive at the same time our pleasure in the hum of insects is also i think a pleasure of reminiscence it reminds us of other springs and summers in other gardens it reminds us of the infinite peace of childhood when on a fine day the world hardly existed beyond the garden gate we can smell moss roses how we loved them as children as a bee swings by insect after insect dances through the air each dying away like a note of music and we see again the border of pinks and the strawberries and the garden paths edged with box and the old dilapidated wooden seat under the tree and an apple tree in the long grass and a stream beyond the apple tree and all those things that made us infinitely happy as children when we were in the country happier than we were ever made by toys for we do not remember any toys so intensely as we remember the garden and the farm we had the illusion in those days that it was going to last for ever there was no past or future there was nothing real except the present in which we lived a present in which all the human beings were kind in which a dim-sighted grandfather sang songs especially a song in which the chorus began free and easy in which aunts brought us animal biscuits out of town in which there was neither man-servant nor maid-servant neither ox nor ass that didn't seem to go about with a bright face it was a present that overflowed with kindness though everybody except the ox and the ass believed that it was only by the skin of our teeth that any of us would escape being burnt alive for eternity perhaps we thought little enough about it except on sundays or at prayers certainly no one was gloomy about it before children william john macnab the huge labourer who looked after the horses greeted us all as cheerfully as if we had been saved and ready for paradise it would be unfair to human beings however to suggest that they are less lavish with their smiles than they were thirty years or so ago everybody or almost everybody still smiles we can hardly stop to talk to a man in the street without a duet of smiles the prince of wales smiles across the world from left to right and the crown prince of japan smiles across the world from right to left we cannot open an illustrated paper without seeing smiling statesmen cricketers jockeys oarsmen bridegrooms clergymen actresses and undergraduates yet somehow we are no longer made happy by a smile we no longer take it as we used to take it as evidence that the person smiling is either happy or kind it then seemed to come from the heart it now seems a formula it is we may admit a pleasant and useful formula but a man might easily be a burglar or a murderer or a cabinet minister and smile some people are supposed to smile merely in order to show what good teeth they have william john macnab i am sure never did that we needn't grumble at our contemporaries however for not being so fine as william john macnab to children for all we know the world may still seem to be full of people who laugh because they are happy and smile because they are kind the world will always retain to a child the chief of toys and the hum of insects as enchanting as the hum of a musical top even those of us who are grown up can recover this enchantment 
not only through the pleasures of memory, but through the endless pleasures of watching the things that inhabit the earth. The world is always waiting to be discovered in full, and yet no life is long enough to discover the whole of a single county, or even the whole of a single parish. Who alive, for instance, knows all the moles of Sussex? I confess I got my first sight of one a few days ago, and though I had seen dead moles hanging from trees and had read descriptions of moles, the living creature was as unexpected as if one had come on it silent upon a peak in Darien. I had never expected it to look so black and glossy in the midday sun, or to have that little pink snout that made me think of it as a small underground pig. I had always been told, too, that the sound of a footstep would frighten a mole, but this mole only began to show fright at the sound of voices. Then it began to tear its way into the undergrowth with paws and snout ever trying to overtake each other. Mr. Blunden has described how the lost mole tries to pierce the mattocked clay in agony and terror of the sun. I got much the same impression of agony and terror as this poor creature dug its way into the grass and ferns, and coming out at the far end of the clump, bolted under a tree like a frightened pig. And yet, they say, this poor little coward is a fierce animal enough. He is, we are told, impelled by so cruel a hunger that he would die of it were it to go unsatisfied for him in twenty-four hours. If he can find nothing else to eat, he will kill and eat a fellow mole. So the authorities tell us, but I wonder how many of the authorities have ever seen a mole in the very act of cannibalism. How many of them have followed him on his long journeys through the bowels of the earth? He certainly looked no South Sea monster on the Sunday morning on which for a few seconds I watched him. Nor would John Clare have written affectionately about him had he been entirely bloody-minded. Then there was the hedgehog. The charm of hedgehogs is that we do not see them every day, that their appearance is a secret and an accident. They are a part of the busy life that goes on all about us, as mysteriously as the movements of spirits. Consequently, when I was looking over a sloping field the other evening, and, hearing a crackling as of sticks being trodden on, turned my eyes and saw a living creature making its way out of a wood into the grass, I was delighted to find that it was a hedgehog, and not a man or a rat. I could see it only dimly in the twilight, and it was difficult to believe that so small an animal had made so great a noise. The pleasure of recognition, unfortunately, was not mutual. No sooner did the hedgehog hear foot-pressing on the road than it gave up all thoughts of its supper of insects and hobbled back into the thicket. I regretted only that I hadn't made a greater noise and scared it into rolling itself into a ball, as everybody says it does when alarmed. But it is perhaps just as well that the hedgehog didn't merely repeat itself in this way. We like a certain variety of behaviour in animals— some element of the unexpected that always keeps our curiosity alive and looking forward. But we must not exaggerate the pleasure to be got from moles and hedgehogs. They make a part of our being happy, but they do not delight the whole of our being, as a child is delighted by the world every spring. It is probably the child in us that responds most wholeheartedly to such pleasures. They, like the harm of insects, help to restore the illusion of a world that is perfectly happy, because it is such a Noah's Ark of a spectacle, and everybody is kind. But even as we submit to the illusion in the garden, we become restive in our deck-chairs, and remember the telephone or the daily paper or a letter that has to be written, and reality weighs on us, like a hand laid on a top, making an end of the spinning, making an end of the music. The world is no longer a toy dancing round and round. It is a problem, 
a run-down machine, a stuffy room full of little stabbing creatures that make an irritating noise. End of section four.